We're glad to have everyone here. So this morning as we begin, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me, uh, we'll be in John chapter 16. Uh, this morning, I'm excited to be in John chapter 16. We're going to sort of close out what is a very important section of Scripture, if, if you can really kind of pull one section as being more than important than another. I don't know about that, but uh, just an important time uh, with Jesus and his disciples uh, right before uh, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so we want to take a look at that this morning, John chapter 16, and we'll kind of move around a little bit uh, this morning. But I want to start by just asking you a question uh, to sort of think about and to kind of maybe carry with you as we uh, think through and read through some scripture this morning. And, and that's this. As you sit here this morning, what would you say is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? Now, maybe that's something that's going on in a relationship. Uh, maybe your greatest need is something that's happening in your marriage. Uh, maybe it's something that's going on at work and something that you're dealing with with an employee or an employer uh, maybe a customer. <laughs> what is your greatest need? Maybe it's uh, something that is with a friendship that you have. Maybe it's a financial need that you have. Uh, but I, I wonder if we were to sort of go around this morning and think about this, the different types of needs that we would have. And there is this reality that we as uh, people, right, as humans, we, we have needs in our lives. And a lot of times our, our lives kind of ebb and flow through the different felt needs that we experience. And if you think about your life, in a lot of ways, that's kind of what we're doing in some respects is we're, we're navigating through one need after another. You know, you wake up and you need to go to the bathroom and then you, you know, you, gotta, you need to brush your teeth before you go to work, right? And then you need to eat. And we, we navigate through needs one right after another. But some needs are, are more serious than others, aren't they? And the world that we live in, obviously, is, uh, or at least it can be, very bleak. And it can be filled with people that are struggling through their needs, struggling to make sense of life. And people have fears that are both personal and specific to their own lives. But then on top of that, there are needs and fears that are collective. Uh, it's not enough that we have trouble of our own, but thanks to the media that we're surrounded by, we also have everybody else's trouble to carry as well. And so there is this, uh, this need that kind of weighs us down. And at the same time, we struggle because we tend to be bad at relationships, and so we lack real support through those needs. And, and families are full of um, just dysfunction and hardship and chaos. And then you throw into the mix that you have decades upon decades of this propagating self-esteem and pride. And what you have is people who are consumed with their own desires and their own wants. And then you sort of double down from that the impossibility of meaningful relationships because we tend to be so self-centered. And so what you get is this sort of pervasive angst in our culture. 
even in the midst of all the material prosperity and this supposed freedoms that we have, we are engulfed in fears and anxieties and doubts and questions. And and the result of this is that we have this sort of dread that we live in that looms in the lives of people's hearts and we wonder about what the response or the, the reality of our life will really become. People are searching for things that give them meaning, desperately searching, while at the same time consumed with selfishness and this self-consumption. And they find themselves unable to be satisfied, unable to be at peace, unable to find lasting joy. And if we were to sort of simplify this down, what we're saying is that there are basic needs that I believe every human has, that every person in this room and your specific need that you kind of sit with today, it boils down to this collective aspect of human need, right? That there are three realities of need for every person. One, people need love, right? Every person needs love. They need to be loved. They need to be loved unconditionally. They need to be loved lavishly. They need to be loved generously. They need to be loved by someone who knows all of their faults and still loves them that way. Secondly, people need someone to trust, someone to believe in them, somebody who is consumed with their well-being, someone into whose hands they can place their lives, who is powerful enough and generous enough and has the resources to secure them in the midst of a very insecure world. They need someone to love them, someone to care for them, someone who has the power to rescue them from their troubles. And thirdly, people need hope. They need to know that there's a future. They need to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, this, to know that someone has a plan, that someone has a purpose for their life, and that somewhere in the future, something good is going to happen. And it's going to be far greater than all of the bad experiences that occupy our lives. It's faith, it's love, and it's hope. Someone to love you, someone you can trust, to care for you, to rescue you, to deliver you, to lift you up out of your problems. And someone to give you a future, love, faith, and hope. It is the Christian triad. It is what is offered to every single person through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he said there are these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Often the Apostle Paul refers to this throughout the other writings that he has, and he talks about how peace and joy come from these three realities. And what we want to look at in John chapter 16 this morning is the essence of the gospel. You know, in a lot of ways, this is the last of the conversation that Jesus has with the disciples. And isn't it interesting here that what Jesus would ultimately leave them with is the gospel, is the foundation of being found in a new position in Christ. And it's interesting in this because the disciples have been with Christ now for three years. And yet the disciples here now find them in a new position because of love and faith and hope. 
And so just to give us sort of a brief recap to this text, Jesus is going to say his last few words to his 11 disciples. Uh, he's given them instruction. He's given them warnings. Um, he, he's talked to them about dying. He's talked to them about leaving. And they're full of concern. They're full of anxiety as we've studied, as we've been moving through John. And while he's been with them, they've had someone who has loved them. While he's been there, they've had someone to believe in who has delivered them from every issue that has come up that they, where they've had need. And while he has been with them, he has filled their lives with hope. But now Jesus is leaving, right? He's dying. He is leaving. And in addition to that, he told, tells them that on, on top of that, you're going to be persecuted in the same way that I have been persecuted you're going to be hated, you're going to be resented, you're going to be rejected. And this is going to happen all throughout human history to all the followers of Christ. It's not going to go well for you. And so why are they going to hate you? Because they hate me first. Why are they going to hate you? Because you are not part of the world system and they resent those who aren't. Why are they going to hate you? Because they don't know God and they are subjects of Satan. And so this is a very bleak moment for the disciples. Jesus is dying. He's leaving. And it's going to get even worse for them. And so he closes out this evening, right? Probably at this point in time, it's just after midnight, early, early Friday morning on the day of his crucifixion. He is about to head out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will uh, end in a... a, a, a prayer that we'll see in John chapter 17 and then he'll move to the garden of Gethsemane and there of course he will be arrested and ultimately crucified it's all coming to an end and they are profoundly troubled and so several times in this text John notes that their hearts were deeply troubled we've looked at that quite a bit but one of the interesting patterns or encouraging patterns is that when there is this element of truth, the reality of our situation that Jesus gives, he always follows it with a word of comfort. And that's what we see here. So Jesus closes verses 25 through 33 is where we're going to be. And he offers them comfort in the midst of their need. And the comfort that he offers them is built around these three realities. You have one who loves you. You have one with whom your trust, your life, you can trust your life in your time and your eternity. And there is one who has planned a hope for you. Faith, hope, and love then dominate this final section of John 16. So Paul says the greatest of these is love, and so that's where we're going to spend most of our time. And then we'll uh, look at the other two as well. So in your Bibles, John chapter 16 Let's look at this together, but we're going to start at the end. So we want to look at John chapter 16, verse 33, start at the end, and then we'll come back because we want to see the emphasis with which Jesus is putting on this little section of scripture. And what Jesus says is he says that we are to take heart, take heart. John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus 
leaves these words of comfort to take heart because he has overcome the world. What's the basis of this need then? The basis really of this need is that we live in a system of evil. We live in a system of evil. Evil dominates the world. A world is ruled by Satan. He is the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that, is now, that now works in the sons of disobedience, which is just another term for sinners. It's a satanically operating, demon-infested world of sinners whose practice, who practice the wretchedness that, has, that, that the fall has produced. This is the reality of the world that we're in. And we are in this world, and we will have tribulation. The word tribulation essentially means pressure or affliction or distress. You are literally going to be crushed. You are going to be pressured. You are going to be in a pressure cooker. You are going to be in distress. You're going to be under duress. This is clear from earlier words in chapter 15 and even as far back as chapter 13 as well. The world hates you and it is hostile towards you. And Paul actually acknowledges this later for the Christian believer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, No one should be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. We are destined for persecution, destined for affliction. We are not surprised by that at all as Christians. All that are godly in this present age will suffer persecution. The New Testament tells us about this time and time again. 1 Peter 5.9, Peter writes and he says, The same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. We expect the world to persecute Christians because they persecuted Christ. Even to kill Christians because they killed Christ. They hate us because we are not of the world and they do not know God. And so he says, take heart because the world that we live in is evil. But then he gives hope, right? That in the face of tribulation, take heart or take courage, some translations might say. So in the face of this tribulation, how are they supposed to survive? Well, they're supposed to survive triumphantly. With victory. Look in verse 33 again. It says, take courage or take heart. Now, that might seem to us like kind of a weak response, right? If, if we're going through difficult times, um, it's not much of a pep talk for somebody to come along and say, well, just take heart. You know, take courage, right? That's encouraging, right? You're dealing with, you know, the worst of fears and anxieties and disappointments and distress. And somebody comes up and says, well, take courage, you're like, oh, that's, that's great. That's much better now, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes you might just want to punch them and say, well, you take courage, right? <laughs> don't do that. You think it, but don't do it, right? But they don't understand sometimes the, the depth of your problem that you're dealing with. And so it's a superficial answer. And, and so it's like, you know, what do you mean? It's, it's more complicated than that. You, can, you can't just say, well, buck up. You know, it's more difficult than that. It's not going to actually work. And there's a reason that it doesn't work. 
It's because that you have, and the person that's telling you this, has no control, typically, or very little control over the circumstances, right? It's, it's a nice gesture, cheer up, is what some translations say, but you have no power over the circumstances. But listen, there is one who does, amen? When Jesus says, take heart or take courage, it's totally different. And there's quite a remarkable use of this word. Take heart or take courage or cheer up in some translations. It's actually just one word in the Greek text. And it's used many times in the Gospels and in the New Testament. And every time it is used in the New Testament, it is an imperative, which means it's a command. It's a command to take courage, to take heart, to cheer up. We are commanded to do it. But what else is interesting about this word is, listen to this, that every time it's used in the New Testament, and it's, it's used several times throughout the New Testament, it is spoken specifically by Jesus. No one else ever says this in the New Testament. And so listen, it's a whole different issue because it's coming from Christ, who is in control of absolutely everything. And so he's the one that says, take heart. He's the one that says, cheer up. And that's different, isn't it? It is completely different when it comes from somebody who has the power and the control over our lives. It's not just a well-intentioned pep talk, but rather it is an absolutely divine promise. The disciples are stressed. They are afflicted. They're pressured. Uh, they don't know how they're going to survive without Christ They've, you know, he's all they've known for three years. And Jesus says to them, cheer up. And he says, I'm going to give you three things that should bring you joy. You're loved by God. You are in God's everlasting care. And God has a promise for your future. You have a love. You have a love. You have a faith. And you have a hope. And so Jesus shares this with them. And this is what I would suggest to us this morning is that this is at the heart of every human need on the entire planet. Why is it that people do not run to Christ so that they can have one who loves them, who is sovereign over the universe, in whom they can trust their lives, someone who is all-powerful, one who gives them a future and a hope, who literally controls their life? Why don't they run to him? Amen. Well, the simple answer is that they love their sin. They love it. They don't just participate in it, but they love it. But for those who come to Christ, he provides all that we need to know that you are loved by God, to know that you are cared by God, He's taken the trust that you've given him by believing in him and he will hold you and he will keep you forever. And to know that he is our hope and that he has a hope for us, that he is in control over all things in the universe, that has the potential to take anxiety out of our life. Peace comes from love and faith and hope. And so let's start with love. The first thing that Jesus gives them in, sense of, in, in a sense of comfort here is a revelation of love. 
Look back with me now at verse 25. We're going to jump back to the beginning of this text, a revelation of love. This is what Jesus says. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And so we have this love of God. And where does this love come from? How do we know about the love of God? Well, it is revealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the love of the Father known to us. Everything that he said to him, right? He's he's not just talking about the previous paragraph. He's not just talking about that night. But he's saying that all the things that he had been saying to them for the past three years, all of his teaching and all of his instructions, it was all about the Father. It was all about the Father. At the end of verse 25, it's all about the Father. He has been revealing the Father. I and the Father are one. I do the Father's will. I only do what the Father shows me to do, wills for me to do, tells me to do. He reveals the Father. God is revealed in Christ. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him is the very wisdom and truth of God personified. It was his mission and purpose. And so everything that he ever said was for the purpose of revealing the Father, to reveal God. But all of it was in figurative language. It basically is meaning like a veiled statement is what the word means. It's a pointed but veiled statement. It's a statement that sheds some light but still has some darkness. Now, think about this, right? Jesus spoke about being the light. He spoke about being water. He spoke about being the bread. He spoke about uh, the temple and his body. He spoke about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He said things like, before Abraham was, I am. And even though there was some light in all of this, there was darkness surrounding it. There was a veil over this. And now he's talking about dying and rising and leaving. And now he, there is this veil that is about to be lifted. Now, we would say this. There is enough truth. There was always, always enough truth in everything that Jesus taught to remove any excuse for not believing in him. There was always enough truth in what he taught to know that he was God, that he was the Savior, that he was the Messiah, and, that, and why he had come to this earth. But there was not always enough truth to always understand everything. And he was speaking in a veiled language because there were things that hadn't happened yet that couldn't be fully explained yet. He was talking about the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And he said a lot of things about the Father, but there were things that had not happened yet. And so there's this veil that was there because there were certain things that just hadn't happened yet. But there was also another reason that there was a veil there. Part of it was because the people were thick-headed, right? Now, that would never happen to us. We wouldn't be that way. Right, but there was, there were, they were thinking, you know, think about that. They, they had a hard time getting it. They were reluctant to believe that he would die, that he would leave, because they thought that he was going to be bringing the kingdom. And, and they had all their sort of personal ambition tied to that. They didn't want him to die. They didn't want him to leave. They, in their minds, that was never the plan. And so they created something of their own veil, if you will, and they were veiled 
from that and also years and years of instruction in Judaism that was an apostate form of Judaism that had created these expectations but had failed to instruct them on the necessity of the Messiah suffering and dying and rising again. And so we can, we can understand this, right? If you and I were in their situation and there was no New Testament and the cross hadn't happened and the resurrection hadn't happened and the Holy Spirit hadn't been sent and we're trying to interpret all the things that Jesus said in the light of what had not yet happened, the same would be true of us. And he says this in verse 25. He says, an hour is coming. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language but I will tell you plainly of the Father. An hour is coming. Well, what is that hour? You know, is it after the resurrection when he met them on the road to Emmaus? Is it, is it during, the, you know, when he was, during when they were in the upper room and he explained the Old Testament? It could have been the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension when he spoke to them concerning the kingdom of God. But probably the, the best and most complete understanding of this idea that the hour is coming is when the hour that the Holy Spirit was sent. Now, we know, because of the previous chapters, that Jesus has been talking about this now for a little while. The promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, chapters 14 and 15 and 16, and he identifies him as the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth will remove the veil. An hour is coming, verse 26, it's called, in that day. In verse 23, it's called, in that day. That day, the hour when the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost, when the age of the Holy Spirit is launched, when the coming age happens, then the veil comes off and the mysteries disappear. Jesus spoke in veiled language. Think about this. Jesus used uh, a lot of parables in his teaching. Um, Parables hid certain truth from people who didn't understand the explanation as judgment. Parables had to be explained to the disciples. But what's kind of interesting about this is that no one in the rest of the entire New Testament, from the end of the Gospels, no one has ever given a parable in the entire New Testament post-Gospels. They are all very direct and straightforward and simple Propositional, propositional statements of truth. The veil is off. Everything is unveiled. After the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of the believer and is a teacher. And the Holy Spirit inspires the writing of the New Testament where the veils are removed so that we have the book of Acts all the way through the book of Revelation to explain everything that Jesus had introduced in the Gospels. And so this is what Jesus is saying. The hour is coming when I no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I tell you plainly of the Father. That will be the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit of Christ. Christ comes back in the Spirit of Christ. This is a mystery of the Trinity. And I'll speak plainly and speak, uh, speak uh, instructively through the Spirit of Christ as recorded in the New Testament. And now we have 27 books that take all the mystery out and they reveal and bring light to the truth of God's word. So why is that then? Why, why is it that, the, or, or maybe how, how is it that the Holy Spirit 
uh, is part of the revelation of God's love. How does that happen? Well, it happens because the Holy Spirit is the one who gives direct access to you and I. In that day, verse 26, go back. It says, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Well, what, is, what does that mean? In that day, you will be able to talk to the Father personally. You won't need to come to Jesus. You won't need to submit your request through Jesus. You'll be able to have direct access to the Father. That's not how it had been working up until that point. When the disciples had a need, they went to Jesus, and Jesus took the needs to the Father. But he's saying that's no longer going to be needed. Now you'll have direct access. You'll be able to take your request directly to the Father. Look back with me in verse 23. We're going to jump back a little bit. Chapter 16, verse 23. It says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He gives direct access. Jesus says when the Spirit comes, you're going to have direct access to the Father. And, and this is kind of stunning, especially to the Jewish people, because God was distant and he was veiled. God was symbolically in the Holy of Holies, right? Only a high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and it was only once a year. And, and he kind of had to get in and out real quick in case there was judgment. But now he's saying everything is exposed. The veil has been ripped or will be ripped and everybody will have free access, direct access to God. And this was foreign to Judaism. To, to, to the Jews of that day, God was distant. He was far away. You, you didn't dare talk about God as your father. Maybe he was the father of the Israelites or something like that. But he was not personal and intimately your father. And then Paul, in his writing, says that we can come to him and we can call him Abba, Father. We're going to have direct access to God. Now he says you can go. It doesn't mean that Jesus won't intercede on our behalf, but he intercedes on our behalf for matters of which we don't have insight or wisdom. But what we desire from God, we have a direct line to ask for. It's cons if, as long as it's consistent with the name of Jesus, the will of Jesus, and the purpose of Jesus, then the Father will respond. And this is important because it really sets Christianity apart from Judaism in a pretty significant way. But it also sets apart Christianity from Catholicism in a significant way. Catholicism, in, in some ways, is kind of a New Testament form of Judaism. It says that we don't really have direct access to God. You need somebody else to give you access, like a priest. But in Roman Catholicism, this is, this is what the Catholic Church teaches. It's not saying that every Catholic believes this, but this is what they teach, is that they teach and have taught for centuries that access to the Father comes only through Mary. Let me read for you a quote from Ludwig Ott. He's a Roman Catholic systematic theologian, and he speaks for the church. And so this is what he says. He says, Mary's intercessory cooperation extends to all graces, so that no grace accrues to mankind without the intercession of Mary. Did you hear that? No grace accrues to mankind without the intercession of Mary. Continuing, he says, the redemptive grace Christ, 
sorry, the redemptive grace of Christ is conferred on nobody without the actual intercessory cooperation of of Mary. In other words, this is what he's saying, is that we can get nothing from God. It is Mary who gets it for you. But Jesus, Jesus gives us a very different message. He says, you don't need me, let alone Mary. You can go directly to the Father in my name. And you can basically say, I come because Jesus invited me to come. And you can say, Abba, Father, Papa. You can speak in terms of endearing familiarity. And I will fight the battle on the divine level for you. But you have complete access to God, complete access to the Father. Well, think about this. Why does God give us access? Like, do we deserve access to the Father? Of course not, right? It's because the Holy Spirit enables this deep affection. It's the Holy Spirit that enables the affection of God. How could we ever have this privilege? Look in verse 27. It tells us, Jesus spells it out. He says, for the Father himself loves you. This is the first point, love. Why does this all come to us? Because the Father loves you. God loves us. And so we can go to him and we can bring our requests with the purpose of Jesus and know that we will receive it. What an amazing truth. It is really an astonishing truth. All of the riches of heaven are at your disposal through Jesus with direct access to the Father. You know, God loves the entire world, right? In a general sense. But he loves his own. And he loves his own in a special way. And it's even more special when you note the English in this because the word for love in verse 27 is not probably what you would expect, agape, right? This supernatural, unconditional, sacrificial love that God has for us. But that's actually not the word for love that's used here. It is the word phileo. It's a brotherly love. It is a family love. It is a love of deep affection. It doesn't speak of some absolute truth or absolute universal attribute of God. It speaks of a personal affection. You might say it this way. It's nice to know that God loves us, but what do you think about the fact that God likes you? Right? He likes you. His affections go toward you. He wants to lavish all of the benefits and blessings of his affection toward you. He wants to draw near to you. And here's a cool thing is that it's present tense, which means it is ongoing. He continually loves you with a deep affection. And so, yeah, he loves everybody in the world, John 3, 16. But he has a special familial affection for those that belong to him. And here's the good news is that he loves us even though he knows everything about us. Right? God loves me even though he knows everything about me. See, you can get people to love you if you don't tell them everything, right? (laughs) But the more that you tell them, the smaller that circle becomes. Isn't that true? Right? But God knows everything, and he loves us. 
all of our unfaithfulness, all of our critical spirit and our bitterness and our sin, he likes us. He has a strong and unending affection for you. It is just an incredible thing, right? Abba, Father. And so how do we get this love, right? You might be sitting here today and think about, well, how does this, uh, you know, how do I receive this love? And here it is, verse 27. The Father himself loves you, here it comes, because you have loved me. How do I get God to love me like that? How do I get God to lavish his affection on me and to care for me and to pour all of his eternal resources of heaven out on me, on my behalf, even though I'm not everything that I should be? How do I get that? The answer is clear. If you love the son that God loves, then God loves you. That's how you step into God's love, by loving his son. Love my son, be loved by me. This is the revelation of God's love through the power of the Holy Spirit. God loves you. But there's a second part of that, and that is a gift of faith. Jesus continues on because it's not just about the love, but it's about the faith that is shared. Verse 27 through 32 says, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, Now you are speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. Now we know you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. There it is, this new position for the disciples. And Jesus, verse 31, answered them, Do you now know, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. See, part of his great love is this gift, this opportunity for faith. But there are some key points in this. One is that what our faith is in matters. We just looked at this in 1 John. It matters what our faith is in. It's not just having faith, you know, but it's what we believe about Jesus and who Jesus is. Because listen, the the Jews didn't believe this. The Jews said that he was from Satan, that he had a demon, that he was not the son of God. But Jesus says, but you believe that I came from God and you believe that I came from the Father and have come into the world. It's the incarnation. And now he's doing the work of the Father and he's going to leave the world again and go back to the Father. In other words, you believe that Jesus Christ is God who came down in human flesh, not born of Joseph or Mary, but conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit as God the Son, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, rose physically from the grave, ascended back to heaven. That's what it means to believe the gospel. That's the facts of the gospel. And so do you believe that? It's one thing to be loved by God, but it's incomplete to not believe who Jesus is, to believe what God has done for us. As simple as these words are, they are infinitely important. Jesus came from God in heaven and then back to God in heaven. 
with the incarnation in the middle. It was the redemptive plan. It's what they believed. They didn't believe that Jesus was just a rabbi or a good teacher. They had said earlier, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the holy one. But you might consider that this confession actually goes even a little bit beyond that. They now know that he came from heaven and he is going back to heaven. And it changes their position. It changes their position because true faith leads to commitment. Listen, if we really have faith that something is true, it will result in actionable change. And so that's what you have to believe. You have to believe and commit your life to God. If you believe that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who came into this world to die as a sacrifice for sin and to rise again to provide our justification before God and ascended back into heaven, if you believe that, then you have put your trust in him as your personal savior. God has become your personal protector. And God will care for you forever because you are his child. Now, that commitment, what is the basis of that? Well, when you sort of isolate this down and you think about this, faith comes out of the omniscience of God. Right? This is, this is what Jesus says. They believe that he was God in human flesh. They believe that he came from heaven. They made the confession. Look at verse 30. It's amazing. They said, now we know that you know all things. So here's the thing. If, if he knows all things, then who is he? Who alone knows all things? God. And only God. And maybe your spouse. But God... <laughs> Right, God is the only one who knows all things. And this is a great confession. How did they come to this conclusion? They've been with him for three years. They knew that he knew everything. He was reading their minds. They knew what they, he knew what they were thinking. And so omniscience is convinc very convincing. They say, we know that you knew, that you know all things, and you don't ask anybody anything. They spent their whole life realizing that they were ignorant and needed somebody to give them information. Jesus never asked anybody anything. He knew everything. You must be God. By this we believe that you came from God is what they said. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. Believing Jesus is God in human flesh. They believed and they affirmed that faith. And listen, when we receive the love of God and respond with faith and belief in him, then our position in life and eternity changes. It's a new position. Is it a foolproof position? Does it mean that we go on without sin, without trial, without problem? Of course not. Because faith can be fluid. Jesus answered them. Some translations say, do you now believe? Sort of as a question. But, but really, when you look at the text, it can be understood both ways. And I, I think in this context, really what we're seeing Jesus say is he's saying, you are now believing. You are now believing. It's really important. He is affirming their faith. I don't really think that he's questioning it. I think that he is affirming it. You are now believing. You get it. You understand. He's saying you're absolutely right. He did come down from heaven. He was going to do the work of the Father and then go back to where he had come from. 
they did believe the right thing. They believed that he was God in the world. And he affirms that. You are believing now. And in this moment, he says, you are believing. But it's interesting, that's, that's not really where the chapter ends. You know, look at verse 32. It says, behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. There's another hour coming, right? This is a different hour. This is the hour of running. The hour that they're going to take off. When is this going to happen? Just a few hours, right? That Jesus is going to be arrested and they are going to flee. So what does that mean? Does it mean that their faith was a sham? Does it mean that it was insincere? I don't think so because Jesus affirmed their faith in that moment. So what does it really mean? Well, it means that their faith was weak. They had little faith. It's like the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's very important for Jesus to say that. And so that when they did this, when they ran, that they would say, hey, this is exactly what Jesus said we would do, which again affirms his omniscience. And it also affirms the fact that he knew that they were true believers, that they were loved by the Father, even though their faith was weak. Listen, God knows his love for you and his commitment to you on the basis of your faith in him does not change when our faith is weak. Their faith was real. It was tested. And when it was tested, they fled. But, you know, at the night of the resurrection, they fled on Friday. But on Sunday, they were all back together and their faith very literally became inflamed. And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, they turned the world upside down. There's a maturing process, but they believed. And because they believed, God kept them and he used them mightily as their faith became strengthened. You know, sometimes I think we would like to think that our faith is always mature. I wonder if there's anybody in here that has mature faith all the time. I will not put my hand up, right? But God's love and his commitment to us, bound through the Holy Spirit, does not change even when we are at our moments of faithful weakness. You cannot live without love, and to be loved by the God of the universe is indescribable. You cannot live without a deliverer or someone to rescue you from the corruption of the world, somebody to help you to overcome the issues of your life. And if you put your trust in God, then you have a promise. You have a promise that God will hold on to you even when your faith is weak. As long as your faith is sincere, that God holds you and keeps you even when we are weak. And so we have love and we have faith. And lastly, we have hope. And in this, we have a promise of hope. Go back to verse 33, right? This is where we began our time. He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, take courage, cheer up. I have overcome the world. Our hope is not in ourselves, obviously, but it is in Christ and it's not just in something that might be, but it's in what has happened. 
we have the truth unveiled through the Holy Spirit, through his word, through the conviction of the Spirit in our hearts, that we can know that Christ was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that his death paid the penalty for our sins. We can have confidence. We can have absolute certainty in this truth. And our hope is manifested in our faith because it's rooted in what is true of the past. He overcame the world, past tense. It hasn't worked out in time, but it's all planned in eternity. This is ultimate victory. The world will persecute you. The world might even kill you. The world will turn against you. But Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the system of evil. I have overcome sin. I have overcome Satan. I have overcome demons. I have overcome it all. And he is triumphant. And his victory becomes our victory. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 says, We are overcomers because our faith is in Christ, and we are united with Christ in his victory. See, whatever your need is, when you're in Christ, you sit in a position of victory with that need. And it's not because you figured out how to solve it. It's not because God has removed it out of your life. But it's because you have a God that loves you personally and intimately. Not just generally speaking, although that's true. But he loves you individually. And he is responding to your commitment of faith and establishing a hope that can live in your heart. Paul says to the Corinthians, we always triumph in Christ. It doesn't matter how the world is going. He wins in the end. He wins. He wins. And so there's hope. There is absolute hope. Paul says, my beloved brother, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because God not only loves us and gives us a hope, but he has the power, right? It's not just cheer up, take courage, you know, take heart, good luck with that. Hope it goes well for you, right? But it is one who is sovereignly over control of the events of our lives. It is one who loves us with a deep affection that pours out his power over our future. And so this morning, we want to leave you with this, is do you want peace in your life? Do you want tranquility in the midst of turmoil? Do you want joy in your life? Do you want to be able to experience true, real joy even in the midst of hardship, no matter how difficult it might be? Then you need to be in the arms of a loving God, a God in whom you have entrusted your eternal soul who cares for you and holds on to you in an everlasting manner even through times of doubt. And a God who has not only the power over the present, but also power over the future and has already ordained that your future and your part in the future is his 
an inheritance undefiled laid away for you in heaven. God loves you. He holds you. And God has a purpose for you in eternity to come. And so this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you've never experienced this new position, then you can do it. And it's this simple. It is recognizing that God loves me and that out of his love, he sent his son to die on the cross and to forgive my sins and to offer me into a direct access relationship with the Father and to receive the gift of eternal life. It is his love that leads us to a place of faith that allows us to experience a life of hope. And our desire, and our wish, and the wish of Jesus for the people that he spent the most amount of time with, the people that he loved the deepest, the wish that he has for them is the same wish that he has for you and I, is that you would know him, experience his love, trust him as your savior, and receive his gift of life and hope. And if you've never done that before, today is that day for you. Today is that hour for you that you can turn your life over to Christ. You can receive his love. And by faith, you can trust in a good God and receive all that heaven has in store for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word first and foremost. God, we thank you for your spirit. God, that empowers and guides and directs and teaches our spirit. But God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you loved us so richly and so deeply. God, we thank you that your love was poured out on us through Jesus through the Spirit, and through the power of the Spirit as seen in the work of your word in our lives. And so, God, we thank you for your love, but we thank you for the offer of relationship, to know, with, know you and to be able to abide with you in eternal fellowship. And so, God, we just pray, if we've never prayed before, God, we pray, God, that you would, would, that you would forgive our sins. God, we, we acknowledge that you are the son of God, that you are God in flesh. God, that you came and you died for our sins, that you rose again conquering sin and death. And God, we receive you as Lord and Savior. And we receive your free gift of eternal life. And we receive your hope in our hearts. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.